Welcome to Indefinable Magic, a sometimes indecipherable warble in time and space. Written and narrated by me, Toby Haydock. Episode 12. You say potato, I say Sontaran. He's halfway towards becoming a crinoid. What? Already the seeds of doom on my first viewing seemed a little wrong. I'd seen The Thing, so I imagined that the Doctor Who episodes set in the Antarctic would look exactly like that, because, well, why wouldn't they? So the keyed-in snow video effect that opened the episode and the flappy beards sported by the scientists who dug a seed pod from a layer of prehistoric polystyrene were an indication that the multi-million dollar production I'd conjured in my head from reading the book might not match what the Doctor Who team were capable of shooting on location or in a BBC TV studio on gaudy 1970s videotape. Actually, I now think it's one of the show's best-mounted productions, and it pulls off an ambitious script with aplomb. But at that time, I hadn't sufficiently decompressed in the airlock between the vast possibilities of the infinitely budgeted book version and the more compromised TV rendition, so I ended up being badly affected by the South Bends. But this was not unusual. So often the visuals achieved by the show didn't stand a man vegetable in a boiler room's chance of pulling off what was offered by the novels. So I got used to things not looking as I'd imagined them when I first experienced the episodes themselves. But at least I knew what everything was called. The monster's name was written on the back cover of the Target novel in capitals. K-R-Y-N-O-I-D. Simple. The crinoid. There were occasional words I had to ask my mum about in order to cross-reference and work out what they meant, but not monster names. Besides, crinoid looked pretty simple, and it was a good monstery name. I liked the Seeds of Doom. Scorby was tough, Harrison Chase was a baddie with a composting machine, and the monster was called the crinoid. He's halfway towards becoming a crinoid. Really, Doctor? And you're only halfway towards pronouncing it correctly. I was surprised, and it jolted me. On another occasion, I was less surprised by the android invasions Stygron actually being called Stigron. I could take that because it's an unusual combination of letters and funny looking on the page, so my attempt at pronouncing the name was a best guess anyway. But Crinoid? That seemed so straightforward. So, yes, I knew there would be some names I would get wrong because some of them were unfamiliar constructions, and as my putty brain moulded around them, it made incorrect shapes and sounds. In fact, I often looked forward to hearing them out loud because I knew that the compromised mush-up that I'd come up with was unlikely to be correct. It was just an aural placeholder. For some reason, for example, my translation device always registered the brigadier's name as Lengthbridge Stuart. I suppose because I knew the word length, and in order to assimilate the military man's quite long name, I'd invented a letter that wasn't there in order to negotiate what was otherwise quite a hazardous linguistic journey for an eight-year-old. 
So I slipped the brigadier a length. The letter N was clearly ultra-helpful. That strange planet the Third Doctor always seemed to be banging on about was Mentenbalis the Third, or something. I don't think I ever quite knew how to pronounce that until I saw the episodes it was mentioned in, but to be fair, not even the Doctor himself managed it by the time he became Matt Smith, who, when he name-checked it in the episode Hyde, transmogrified it into Metabolis, rather than Metabilis, as John Pertwee pronounced it. Presumably, in a lot of houses containing hardcore fans at that time, the air went decidedly blue. It seems odd to me that a programme that sometimes ties itself in knots to mention some arcane reference to the show's past doesn't then make sure it gets the basics correct, thus providing a course which has been made to taste horrible for the only people who can actually eat it. It's a bit like making a lasagna with soya for the vegetarians in the room, but then serving it on a plate made of ham, or inside a dead horse. Smith did apparently pronounce it right at some point during the production, but his mangled version made it through by accident, even though the correct iteration was hiding somewhere in plain sight. He's not alone, though. Earlier incarnations have some stranger, more eccentric pronunciation inconsistencies. The Seventh Doctor, in the hands, or rather the vocal cords, of Sylvester McCoy, doles out some word deliveries that are the result of the actor's Scottish twang and tendency to get slightly tongue-tied, giving the Doctor a pleasing sound which nevertheless comes at the price of occasionally garbled delivery. Delivery. I'm going to leave that in to prove that I'm not having a go at Mr McCoy and that I too am prone to such things. Anyway, this garbled delivery comes to a pinnacle in the scene in Remembrance of the Daleks, in which he corrects Ace's pronunciation of his arch-enemy's name by mispronouncing it himself, after which she, inexplicably, then gets it right. These Daleks, she says. Daleks, he replies. Oh, Daleks, she rejoins, even though that isn't remotely what he said. And as I say, I'm not calling anyone out here. Performance has many pitfalls and pronunciation is a biggie. With your brain throwing up unexpected milliseconds of doubt about what you're about to say at the most inopportune of moments. Since I've taken part in making things and broadcasting, I've lost count of the amount of times something as innocuous as a name can cause an unexpected question mark at a perilous moment. We're about to shout action and someone says, Are you sure it's Gatis and not Gatis? That one was given to me by a keen production assistant and even though I knew I was right, the words and sounds and syllables suddenly started dancing in my ears and doubt, which I had hitherto not entertained, was now partying in the Haydoke synapses and looking like it was set for a sleepover. I stood my ground, and correctly so, which means I shouldn't have to blush should I ever have the fortune of being in Mr Gatiss's vicinity. A better outcome than when filming my first DVD extra for the Doctor Who ranges. Robophobia, where the name Carel Capek, as I'd always pronounced the moniker of the playwright who coined the word robot, caused some debate. I had to say it a lot, and every time it leapt off the page and mocked me, dancing robotically, but never in a manner that cleared up how it should be said. No worries, said I. Let's record two versions and look it up later. Then use the correct one in the cut. 
These were the days before people routinely carried the internet around with them. Plus, we were filming in a 1950s house, so strictly speaking, we were somewhere where the internet hadn't been invented yet. So I did one take saying Capek, and another saying Capech. Brilliant! Foresighted! Well planned! And both completely wrong, as the many people who have, over the years, gleefully told me will attest. It seems so obvious now, in the cold light of day when time, pressure, and just typical blooming luck mucking about with your vocal cords are no longer problems they were in the heat of the moment. And it's obvious. Yes, it should be Karel Chapek. So sue me, I'm human, not some pre-programmed... Oh, never mind. As I have said, though, I have form for mispronunciation, which, considering I have a name that is serially botched, is a bit of a cheek on my part. It's Haydoak, by the way, how I pronounce it at the beginning and the end of these broadcasts, not how you and others pronounce it, even after hearing me doing so. Oh yes, I've had them all. Haddock, Haycock, Hadoki. Yes, that's a favourite one. Hadoki. I know the exact expression on someone's face when meeting me for the first time, having read my name, that means, I'm slightly surprised you're not Japanese. On the rare occasions people do pronounce my surname right, they contrive to prove that nothing ever goes perfectly in my world by calling me Tony. I am many things, but a Tony isn't one of them. And I say that with no disrespect to Tonys. I've admired many a fine Tony. Curtis, Burrow, the Tiger, but I am not among their number. In the same way that I like Cornettos, but am resolutely not one, I appreciate the Tonys of the world, whilst not feeling comfortable being numbered among them. Oddly, though, I have never struggled with the pronunciation of the doctors' names, even though one of John Pertwee, uh, Jan Putrid, Jim Peewee's running gags was the diverse and disastrous renditions of his moniker. It seems pretty straightforward to me. Pertwee, as does Troughton, and it's only later in life that I have discovered people who had always thought of him as Trufton, time flies by when you're the driver of a TARDIS, or Troughton. Even simpler-looking names can be transmogrified with the addition of just a letter, as Peter Davidson and Christopher Ecclestone will no doubt tell you as you pick your teeth up from the floor. Even an elongated vowel can make a name sound different. He was Roger Delgado, not Delgado, to me, for many years. But to be fair, when names originate abroad, different rules apply, so I'm not blaming my Delgada for that one. And of course, Doctor Who has its fair share of exotic, foreign-sounding names ripe for mouth-mangling if you're an English youngster. I remember being thrilled when watching The Enemy of the World Part 3 for the first time and finding that George Pravda's character... I used to pronounce him as George Pravda, as it happens, was called Alexander Dinesh. When I had read the book, he had been the far more prosaic Deans. That's how it looked, D-E-N-E-S. So I had no idea it would be pronounced otherwise. So the fact that it had an unvoiced fricative made it seem exotic and suddenly gave the story, which in the then only existing episode seemed to be set in the globe-trotting environs of a corridor and a kitchen and a caravan, and to be largely concerned with menus and a comedy chef, 
a feel of internationalism that helped broaden it out from behind its otherwise rather domestic and culinary confines. In fact, I probably read most things in the Target books in my own voice, so when I finally got hold of the video of, say, Image of the Fendal, and Dr Fendelman became a physical presence on VHS after being someone whom I'd vocalised in my own head, his accent revealed that rather than sounding like me, he sounded like someone from, well, wherever it is Dr Fendelman is from, which I think a top group of maverick scientists holed up in a country house are still trying to ascertain. I suppose I could have guessed that had I thought about it or read the book more closely. But Castellan Spandrel in The Deadly Assassin, played by the aforementioned George Pravda, being from a hitherto undiscovered Czechoslovakian wing of Gallifrey, well, that was certainly a shock. Now, opinion is divided on the success of this, but I was always rather taken with the idea. Why wouldn't different regions of Gallifrey have different accents like our planet does? Seeing as the next time we visit it, in The Invasion of Time, the invasion is perpetrated by a Sontaran from Fulham, well, I think we got off lightly. Spandrel, of course, pronounces the word for what it is not actually blatantly ascribed, but we have since assumed it to be, the wildlings outside the capital dome on Gallifrey as Shabugans, which made a mockery of my own attempt to wrangle that wonderful appellation, which I had interpreted as Shobagons. But when you're learning to read, even actual words are hard enough, let alone made-up ones. So is it any wonder I went through Pyramids of Mars going skakth, skuth, skak, until my brother put me out of my misery and suddenly it looked like it should have been Sutek all the time. You know, I was young. I needed a hand with Sutek. But I'm okay with that. Space names are hard. And actually, there's an art to them. The consistent nomenclature of the Thals in the first Dalek story is a success, especially when in Terry Nation's first stab they were called things like Kurt and Stoll, because Germanic names are cool, aren't they, Terry? But the Thals were all renamed between drafts, and the resultant names are esoteric without being silly. They're not called Zarjaz or Bingbong. But even so, I can't say Alidon and Elion tripped off my tongue untangled. Alidon, Elion, and I still think Antodus, as I thought it was, is a reasonable stab at Antodus. I wasn't always so lucky, though, and I forgive my eight-year-old self for not even attempting to rationalise the seemingly random pile-up of consonants that made up the name of the Aztec High Priest of Sacrifice in the Aztecs, who I was happy to condense into a manageable Toloxal until I was given proof otherwise. Sometimes, like a computer downloading too many things at the same time, the brain just gives up when trying to assimilate too many seemingly conflicting letters. Of course, we all have a universe of our own terrors to face, and less frighteningly, a solar system of our own mispronunciations to navigate. It never occurred to me that Omega's jelly-like wobble-monster advance guard creatures in The Three Doctors were called anything other than gel guards, even though they aren't actually named on screen. So it was a great shock to me when a friend confessed that to them they had always been gel guards, which is a perfectly acceptable conclusion to reach from the assemblage of letters, but, well, except for the fact they aren't made from gel, because there's no such thing as a 
girl. But it's only obvious once it is, as Carol Chapek would doubtless happily have told me had he not died in 1938. Omega, by the way, was Omega in our house until the repeat of the three doctors in 1981 disabused us of that one. But my 17-year-old son is currently having none of it. He still insists on Omega, and in a recent conversation I abandoned for the sake of my own sanity, he told me that as he and his mates all pronounce it Omega, not in the Doctor Who context, by the way, but in the Greek letter mathematical symbol side of things, he reasons that because his entire generation pronounce it Omega, that that will eventually become the norm and is thus, technically, now correct. This sort of thing boils my goat. Just because people repeatedly make a mistake, it doesn't mean we should bow to them. Appletize became appletizer because people kept incorrectly calling it that. Well, to me, it's a short hop from that to 2 plus 2 equaling 5. I'm all for democracy, but some things are just wrong. Does this mean that the complete history of time will be, in future reprints, ascribed to Stephen Hawking's? Or that old episodes of EastEnders will have the credits changed so that Pauline Fowler is played by Wendy Richards? I don't think so. The universe may be constantly expanding, but that doesn't mean it's got space to accommodate spelling mistakes. Now, full disclosure. I was lucky in this whole pronunciation malarkey, as I am the youngest of four. So I suspect the fact that I had older brothers saying it probably meant that I was always, for example, a Sontaran man, but Sontaran is a frequent and unsurprising error from some. In fact, the director of their first story, Alan Bromley, favoured that pronunciation, but the actor playing the character of Lynx, Kevin Lindsay, said quite fairly that as he was from there, he probably knew how best to pronounce it. And he favoured Sontaran. Lindsay was Australian, though, so perhaps the vowel sounds are slightly influenced by that, and that Bromley's preference is a far more likely conclusion from someone from this side of the equator. Whatever. Familiarity means that Sontaran sounds right to me. And you know how the song goes. You say potato, I say Sontaran. That said, I've never heard anyone say potato, and if I did, I would consider them slightly damaged. So that whole song is barking up the wrong tree in the first place. If ever you try to date anyone who does say potato, by the way, I say run a mile, because that's just odd. Whereas if they say tomato, it's OK, they're just American, and that's fine. Don't be racist. I think brothers again meant that I never had the mandragora, mandragora problem. No, the confusion there arose from the being masks on the cover of the novel. The mask of the title of The Mask of Mandragora, of course, is a masquerade and is not spelt the same as mask, as in a facial covering, like those sported by Hieronymus, his acolytes, and, yes, the front cover. So that switcheroo, diversion, sleight of hand, misdirection wasn't helpful for a language-learning youngster, a confusion that wouldn't have occurred had the target novel depicted anything else on the cover other than those masks you know, as opposed to the mask, if you see what I mean. Still, in being told the difference between the two masks, I guess I learned something at a young age which expanded my vocabulary and improved my mind and added to my dictionary and would have been really useful 
had I ever, in the intervening years, been invited to a mask. Still waiting. I learned some pronunciations surprisingly late. I think the villain in the Space Pirates being called Cavern was a surprise to me. I'd always thought he was a Caven, but his Christian name being Morris probably disturbed me more. I'm not sure I'm from a universe in which villains are called Morris. Even now, I struggle to make myself say the Reboss Operation and not the Ribos Operation, even though I can tell you what studio it was recorded in, TC4, who designed it, Ken Ledsham, and which guard extra was paid a slightly higher fee for saying the unscripted line, Right, sir, Pat Gorman. So whilst I've added to my storehouse of information about that story, my very first pronunciation of it on very first sight of the book of it has stuck with me and somehow won't shift. Maybe one day someone will track me down to the ditch in which I'm living and tell me that all that time Toby was right and that it really should be Rybos, but I doubt it. Even shorter words from that same season are potential disasters. Ogri, for example, from the Stones of Blood, is painfully close to Orgy, an event where being rock-hard is probably an advantage. Who is brandishing whose truncheon is worth considering, and where you must absolutely pay close attention to the sausage sandwiches on offer. And what about the demons? That ash, that's the conjoined A and E thing, by the way, gives the title a certain cabalistic je ne sais quoi, but I'll let myself off the hook pronunciation-wise. I was very much a Damon's man child, which is fair enough, seeing as even John Pertwee can't decide on the pronunciation during the story itself, changing his mind halfway through. The same happens to the shifty Caleb in the face of evil, so shifty that he's referred to as Caleb on film and changes pronunciation come studio time. Slippery customer that he is. Ones that are consistently pronounced on screen but foxed me on first exposure include the Robots of Death's Commander Yuvanov, Ovanov to nine-year-old Toby, the Widden, which were the Wern, and I'm not blaming the extra R they get in the novel for that, and Commander Azixia, who I made a brave stab at, but still had to make do with Axaxa until the VHS of the Monster of Peladon came to my rescue. There were some words, like Eocenes, which I'd seen written down, but I didn't even try. So thank goodness Dr Quinn got his dates wrong and saved us all a lot of verbal hurdling. It's all very well fouling up pronunciations of made-up names, but sometimes the show itself perpetrates its own malapropisms for words that actually exist. John Pertwee's incorrect issuing of the word chitinous, meaning a tough, impenetrable shell, as chitinous in The Green Death was the source of an early, and in retrospect rather unlikely-sounding, anecdote from producer Barry Letts. He received a letter which apparently said, Dear Barry Letts, the reason I am written is about how to say kitten, which may as well have been in code, frankly, and rendered the observation redundant thanks to an overload of arseholery in its method of delivery. Tom Baker pronounces Terran, as in from Earth, the planet Terra, as Tehran, as in Tehran, the capital of Iran, in The Robots of Death, probably to stamp his authority on the director, or maybe because he was bored, but it nonetheless is a mistake, and it doesn't help. I'm sure it's Terran, Tom, one can hear a tumultuous floor manager proffering, 
only to be met with, I'm a Time Lord from the constellation of Casturbaris. How the hell do you know how I pronounce things? Fortunately, the glorious Mr Baker is now much less of a scary prospect, and I have had the privilege of experiencing him only ever in tip-top form in various green rooms. On one such occasion, he recalled how he had admired Laurence Olivier's fascination with words and pronunciation, describing how that giant of the theatre once wrangled the sounds that made up the generally innocuous name Beryl. Beryl, repeated Tom, mimicking the overpronounced odd iteration that Olivier eventually settled on. Mr Baker marvelled at how interesting it was to hear such a mundane sound, Beryl, messed about with by a master so that it danced freshly on the ears. Beryl! Watching Tom Baker as the Doctor, I can see Terran, Tehran, and other such examples. The chameleon factor, he says in horror of Fangrock, clearly messing about with the author's intended chameleon factor, as being other examples of Beryls. So don't blame Tom. Blame Laurence Olivier. Horror of Fangrock was a fairly fractious old time in Hooland, and Tom Baker doesn't confine his sound shifting to a word for shape changing, as he also mangles skamuli, an early single shot weapon, in order to rhyme it with early. So he says early shamurli, but that's just to have linguistic fun. It does, though, give the impression that he's auditioning for the role of Officer Crabtree in a low low just in case his relationship with director Paddy Russell deteriorates to the point where he walks off the show. Or wicks off the shoe. In Nightmare of Eden, he's at it again with the spaceship Hecate, which in his mouth becomes Hecate. Now, interestingly, the Greek goddess of that name was generally pronounced Hecate, close to what most of the Eden cast use for the spaceship, because the medieval times in which it appeared usually neglected to have an E on the end of its spelling. But Baker's way is closer to the original Greek pronunciation of the name of the goddess of witchcraft, crossroads and, possibly, incorrect diction. In the same story, the character Fisk pronounces the character Trist's name as, um, Fisk, which is not really a mispronunciation, more a total muck-up, but it shows how close to the wind that production was sailing, and how Baker's deliberately challenging pronunciation of the Hecate-slash-Hecate was the least of its problems, which is probably why he decided to try and get away with it in the first place. When your director has walked off, your chief villains put on a silly accent, and your monsters can't bend their arms, a rogue vowel sound from your leading man, well, that's just going to get overlooked. It wasn't just the fictional creations, or even words spoken on screen, that caused problem to a young fan as he learned how language and sound work. Doctor Who is a broad church and has, over the years, been made by people with sometimes challenging names for someone like me who grew up in a village where not being called Michael or John was deemed somewhat avant-garde. Oh yeah, you could be called Toby, so long as you were a dog. So, some names on the credits took some wrangling. It was only relatively recently that I was able to nail down the correct version of Doctor Who's first designer, who had been to me Peter Brachaki, Peter Brachatsky, Peter Brukaki, which is painfully close to Bukaki, 
appropriate, I suppose, for something that proves to be a bit of a mouthful, until his family let us know that we had been brahatskiing up the wrong tree all these years. I was watching a documentary about something else, a horrible crime, actually, when the caption under someone's name, someone who had been referred to as Saywood, meant that the sawward I had been brandishing all these years was actually a violent and unimaginative rendering of the show's 1980s script editor's name. The ARC director, Michael Imerson, will I'm sure have heard many an Imerson, a pale Imerson of his actual name, whilst survival actress Shakunthala Ramani has probably had more than her fair share of Sakuntalas, and I am convinced my grandad did me a disservice when I talked about Fury from the Deep's Victor Madden, and he told me it was Madern, and I think I was right in the first place. My grandad, usually correct about most things, had made a hash of that one. I think he'd maddened it. But it's all part of our journey. Some fans born post-2005 might well encounter the word Raxacorico Fallopatorius on the page before hearing it spoken out loud, and so their first viewing of World War III will doubtless come as an immense relief. Or perhaps I'm wrong, and in this easy access to video age, perhaps they won't, and actually will be denied a voyage of discovery. I've talked elsewhere on this show about expanding our vocabulary, but our reading about the show, our listening to it, tells us how words are constructed and how sounds can combine to surprising effect. And sometimes there are words that have always been pronounced a particular way, but still, because of how we came across them, and because of what we'd embedded into our vocabulary banks long before we heard them spoken out loud, that even now just seem plain wrong. It's crinoid. But that's all part of the fascinating landscape of that marvellous programme, Doctor Who, or Doctor Wu, as a BBC lady announcer of the mid-2000s called it. Now that one, I've never got to the bottom of. Thank you for listening to <clears throat> Indefunable Mujak, which was written and spoken out loud by me, Tony Hadnook. podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson and the music for Indefinable Magic has been especially composed by Dominic Glynn. These podcasts are only possible thanks to patrons who include Lee Kremin, Peter Burns, David Green, Edward Salt, John Elledge, Ashley Knight, Andrew Egan, Stephen Hill, Stuart Mitchell, Nathan Moore, Matthew Newton, Dave Owen, Melvin Pena, Keith Pirry, Jonathan Potter, Dylan Rees, John Rivers, Jim Saxter, Matt Sawyer, Keith Say, Len Stewart, Neil Tate, Nick Tedston, Nick Temple, Sabrina Tirabassi, Reynard Toombs, Apollo C. Vermouth, Gary Wales, Adam Westwood, Rich Wiggins, Michael Williams, 
Andrew Willis and Stephen White. If you enjoy these and would like to contribute to the running and creation of them, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. Tiers start from as little as £3 a month and you get access to early material and exclusive releases and other things as you ascend up the ladder, although it's pretty egalitarian and most things are available at even the lowest tier. And you can get 10% off any of the tiers if you join up for a year in one go. Now, times are tough, I know that, and also people have lots of different financial commitments, so if you just occasionally want to pop in rather than uh, uh, subscribe monthly, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock, and if you think I'm sounding tired and hungry, you can throw me a virtual coffee. Uh, but look, I know that times are tough, and I am just very grateful to you for listening to this stuff, and I do hope you like it. And if you do, it will cost you nothing to go to your podcast provider and give these five stars and perhaps a favourable couple of lines of review. That's really, really important this day and age with all those podcasts out there, especially ones about Doctor Who. There's a gazillion to uh, help to make these more noticeable and uh, therefore other people can stumble across them and hopefully enjoy them in the way that you do. And if you like what I say and the way I say it, you can avail yourself of one of my comedy nights. I'm at Excess Malarkey in Manchester every Tuesday from 8pm, introducing a fantastic lineup of live guests on stage. Now, geography may preclude you from doing that, but we've gone monthly online as well. We were online throughout the pandemic doing a show on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey there's already an archive of the shows we did during the pandemic but we're also live at 8 p.m on the first sunday of every month that show is me introducing four acts from around the world for comedy and for chat and it's completely free although we do take donations so uh, have a bash at those if you like or you could just have a rest or listen to music or go on some sort of rampage but i don't think you should do the latter